Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Bonjour, bienvenue à Weeds. Soy Matthew Iglesias. We're, yeah, we're probably not going to do the podcast in French. It is European Election Week. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here today with Dylan Scott and Libby Nelson. Uh, really excited to have these two in here with me. Uh, I wanted to talk today about charter schools and teachers' unions and the Democratic primary, as these things are kind of colliding. Uh, I think we're starting to see a number of different candidates, you know, lay out ideas on education. We've talked a lot. A lot of the media has talked a lot about student debt, things like that. But you're seeing some some clear plays to address K-12 issues. And Bernie Sanders waded very dramatically into one of the things that I, I don't know if normal people even care about this at all, but like people who write about politics for a living, um, very divided feelings on charter schools. And Bernie clearly does not have warm feelings to them. No, he has uh, staked out some new ground in the 2020 debate uh, by rolling out this plan that would both uh, explicitly ban for-profit charter schools, so charter schools that are run to actually make money uh, would be prohibited under uh, the plan that Sanders wants to institute. And then he also wants to place a moratorium on federal funding for new charter schools. Um, I followed up with his uh, office when they, or his campaign when they rolled out their plan, and there's a about $450 million line item in the education department's budget that is used to pay for new charter schools to get up, set up and get up and running, and um, his campaign said that they would like to close off that funding stream for and, new and charter I, schools. I would also say that, like, as is sort of I think kind of often the case with Bernie Sanders, like what the literal policy is, is sort of one thing. And the reactions are more about what he's saying, right? You right. could imagine a lot of politicians in some kind of context being there's this one federal funding stream that uses money that helps new charter schools get created. And I've decided that you know, it's a it's kind of a small thing. There's a lot of administration to it. It's really not worth it. It's not the federal role in this stuff. So I'm going to fold it into something else, blah, 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 blah. Right. But like what Bernie did was he delivered a message where he, you know, there was like a tweet where he was like, what we should be doing is investing in our public schools, not siphoning money into schemes that only enrich people like Betsy DeVos. Right. right? And that was the he was not making a, like, narrow technical point about the Department of Education budget, right? He was <laughs> he was aligning himself emotionally and intellectually with people who believe that the whole charter school thing has gone way too far, is draining resources from public schools, and is hurting America. I actually want to back up here to start with uh, what a charter school is and how exactly. sort of how we got to this point because it's 
a pretty interesting story about education in America, I think. Um, yeah. So charter schools are uh, – Privately run but publicly funded. Essentially, they take the money that they would would follow students to another school. They give it to somebody else, a for-profit operator, a group of teachers, um, a nonprofit consortium, and say, hey, you set up a school. Because you're not part of the district, you can have some more flexibility on things. In exchange, usually states uh, have some kind of standards that schools have to meet or some kind of authorization process. You can't just, like, set up a school in perpetuity and keep getting that money forever. There's a couple things here. One is the for-profit operators, which is about 20 percent of the sector. They're not legal in all states. um, And they are pretty controversial in the same way that for-profit colleges are controversial. The question of whether anybody should be able to profit off of educating people uh, in a true, like, profit sense, not a nonprofit that just accumulates money and sits on it for a while, uh, as many private universities do, is pretty controversial to begin with. That's not a particularly out there suggestion and certainly – as we've seen more attention to profit in the education sector through some of the Betsy DeVos controversies, not a huge deal. The, the bigger question of whether charter schools are public schools, whether they drain resources for public schools, is like the real third rail here. And that's the third rail that Bernie Sanders has like eagerly reached out and well, grasped. Exactly, because what you could imagine is a different politician, right? Say say a politician who had had a, a track record of supporting charter schools, right? Uh, Cory Booker, for example, has long been a charter school supporter, has long been at odds with teachers' unions, and he might want to soften his image as like a scourge of America's public school teachers. And you can imagine him being like, I stand by everything we did in Newark. I think charter schools are lovely. Name check seven well-regarded charters. But say, I do think some of these for-profit operators have gotten out of control. But like, again, that that's not what Bernie was right. doing. Right. He's like... He's not just against it. He's centering it, right? Like right. He, he is centering the idea that like this concept that we should allow public funds to flow out of normal district-operated unionized schools into the charter sector is bad. Yeah, and I think that the unionized point is actually yeah. a big one here. There's a part of this plan that – hasn't gotten as much attention because it's very technical. Um, But it's about requiring charter schools to essentially abide by the terms of the collective bargaining agreement in the district that they would be in. You know, basically, like, if the neighborhood school down the street has its collective bargaining agreement, they have to have a fairly similar arrangement. That's actually a really big deal. A huge part of the selling point of charters initially in the 90s was that – bureaucratic red tape was what was preventing schools from becoming good in ex- in exchange for, you know, some uh, – the flexibility that schools were going to get uh, was going to be to, like, cut through this red tape. And part of that red tape is collective bargaining agreements. And, right. and, and I think this is actually a really important nuance because something, something you often hear at a sort of superficial discussion of this is that, well, in uh, Sweden, like – all the schools, in effect, operate on a kind of charter school paradigm, right? And you can imagine things like like that happening in, in different places. Um, but one of the things about Sweden and the other Nordic countries is that they have what's called like sectoral labor bargaining. Essentially, everybody who works for a big employer, of which schools are one, is part of a uniform collective bargaining agreement. So, like, read Matt Iglesias' explainer on this Yeah. So it's like all the teachers in Sweden are in a single collective bargaining agreement with the schools as a collectivity, uh, which is not to say that the school choice paradigm in Sweden has no impact or isn't controversial, but it's not centrally about whether or not 
the faculty in the schools will be unionized, whereas the United States has weak unions, uh, firm-level bargaining, and high concentration of unionization in particular sectors. So something that is formally speaking a question about like should – schools be owned and operated by local governments or owned and operated by nonprofit operators is at least to to a lot of people in a practical sense, right? Like the point of the charter schools is to escape from the confines of the collective bargaining agreement, maybe in a good way or maybe in a bad way. And I think we've certainly seen both. There are some unionized charter schools, by the way, but it is like a very small share. Uh, They're increasingly unionizing because escaping from the collective bargaining agreement often means you have a lot of teachers who are young. You have a lot of teachers who work a lot of hours, which is sometimes fun as like – or presented, I guess, as like this is how dedicated and how great they are. They were all work eleven hour days. On the other side, it's like these teachers are working eleven hour days. This is terrible. Right. Um, it's it's like it's important to get on because there's like there are a lot of different aspects of the charter model that can be attractive to students and parents and policymakers and things like that. Right. In D.C., a, a a grievance that I have with the D.C. public schools and something that I find appealing about the charter sector. Right. Is that we have a big city and we have a lot of different neighborhoods. It costs different amounts of money to live in the different neighborhoods. And the schools have different quality, right? So if you want to get a house where you are zoned into the desirable middle school, you need to spend many millions of dollars on your house. Uh, whereas if you live someplace else, like you have to go to the local public school there. Whereas with the charters, like they're located all around the city, but everybody can apply on equal terms. So like that that seems nice to me. That is a good pro-fairness thing and in a lot of ways makes the charters more public than the public schools, which are like the private property of the homeowners. But at the same time, I totally understand from like the teacher's viewpoint, it's like, no, the charter schools are a way to get into an exploitative labor relations paradigm. And if you if you had equalization on one level, I mean, it might cripple the charter's ability to do something they think is great, or it might solve the teacher's biggest concern. And in understanding this in the 2020 lens, I think it's important to, rem- uh, to note how the internal democratic politics on this have changed over the last, like, 20, 25 years. Because ah, yes. back in the 90s, um, in the Clinton years and after No Child Left Behind and, the, and for much of the George W. Bush years and even up through President Obama and Race to the Top, mainstream Democrats were actually more aligned with the education reform pro-charter school movement. Um, and that actually put them at odds with the teachers' unions. But after, you know, after the last decade or so where you've seen, um, you know, Republican-led states passing right-to-work laws, we're in a, a post-Janus world where the Supreme Court has significantly weakened the rights of the labor movement um, to collectively bargain. Democratic politicians, I think, are feeling a new solidarity with the labor mu- movement, and there's just not a lot of appetite for challenging organized labor, um, given all those recent events. Yeah, so can you tell us, like, like, what did the Obama administration do? Because this is, I think, something that's very emotionally and intellectually significant to the people involved, but I think also a little invisible. Yeah, this is um, definitely probably one of those policies where the amount of knowledge from the people who really care about this issue and, like, everyone else has one of the vastest gaps, like, I know some things about healthcare, even though I am not like a healthcare person. Education is a lot more hidden. So, 
as part of the stimulus bill in 2009, the education department just ended up with some money to play around with. Um, I think it was about a billion dollars. And basically, this was kind of the height of the vast collection of ideas that are kind of collectively called education reform, which is basically that, like, you should be using test scores to measure the quality of schools, to measure achievement gaps, and to pressure schools and teachers to close those gaps. Um, the idea that, like, the quality of a given teacher is one of the most important things in education and that that quality can be measured through things like standardized test scores. Encouragement of, like, new models, which is mostly uh, various kinds of charter schools. Those are the three, you know, really right. big principles. The education department can't do anything. Like, this is the weirdest thing about this conversation in the context of 2020 is education is really one of the last true issues where there is significant local control. Um, even, at the, even at the local and district level, certainly at the state level. Yes. What the education department can do is they can hand out grants. And a lot of its money is actually restricted by Congress. Like, you can't just say, I'm taking all of the money that goes to schools and I'm going to give these criteria. A lot of it is formula-funded. But the Obama administration created these grants that states could apply for, and in order to get preferential treatment for these grants, they had to change their policies. And every state government in America was facing a budget yes. crisis. Yes, and I, it, is, it was a time when getting more money for education, one of the biggest things in any state budget, was like everybody wanted that. Um, I can't believe I got this far without saying the words Common Core, which is not mm -hmm. actually important here. I just am going to stop and marvel at that for a moment. Adopting the Common Core was one of the other things they had right. to do. Um, but one of the other things that was required as part of this grant was that states had to basically make it easier for charter schools to set up shop. That's it. That's all they did. They, like, right. created these grants. It was, like, a tiny amount of money, even compared to the overall education budget, let alone compared to the overall federal budget. It started this, like— a lot. It started a lot of change, and it started a long-term uproar. Right, and but and I would say also that you know one of the things that was going on here because like Dylan, you were saying that you know mainstream Democrats were were supportive of of these education reform causes, but there was a little bit of a, I, I would say a large bit of a contingent element to that, right? That like in the two thousand eight primary, the main teachers unions went in pretty hard for Hillary Clinton. And she lost the primary. And it, part as a result of the teachers' union supporting Hillary, the education reformy Democrats supported Obama. I would not say that I would characterize that race as like heavily characterized by Hillary and Obama arguing about charter schools. <laughs> but it was like one of the big below the waterline things that was happening in that primary. And then this became important because there's like a – there's a struggle between the Ed Reform Dems and the teachers' unions about the um, cosmic narratological meaning of education reform and having in particular um, African-American political leaders who are seen as aligned with uh, charters and testing regimes is really, really important to the reformers, yes. right? And ruining those African-American politicians' reputations is really, really important to the unions. The reformers and the unions both perceive that if the education reform position is understood as part and parcel of being a moderate centrist pro-business Democrat, that like ultimately they will lose that argument. And so the reformers want to say that the epicenter of education reform is people like the mayor of Newark, people like former Washington mayor um, Adrian Fenty, pe people like Barack Obama, right? That like 
city leaders and urban populations who have been poorly served by the education system are demanding these reforms. To put it, I mean, to put it even a little more bluntly, yeah. what the reformers want is for this to be seen as a civil rights issue, and they are on the side of civil rights. Right. What the unions want is for this to be seen as a corporatization issue that is about crushing labor and letting business into things and seeing everyone as like little widgets that only exist to go right. into the broader economy. And, and, and that, I think, is why there is a level of interest in what presidents say about this that is disproportionate to the question of what the president will do in a practical sense. That, like, Obama as a symbolic totem of education reform was very important, like, over and above race for the top grants. There there are real reasons why even the Obama administration ended up souring on some of this. There was a real turn against sort Mm -hmm. of standardized testing. But there also was the fact that Congress actually finally, after like 17 years, reauthorized No Child Left Behind and then found, you know, some kind of compromise on testing and accountability that was basically like, well, there's going to be some testing and some accountability, but not not (laughs) to the level that we had it under No Child Left Behind. And like, that's not going to happen again in the next four years. Like, they're done with that law. It's it's five years, I think, before it even expires. Usually these laws lapse for several years before anybody gets around to rewriting them. Like, the likelihood that on any level, like Bernie Sanders policy. promising to move around one small line item in the budget or Elizabeth right. Warren um, promising, as she has recently promised, to appoint a public school teacher who cares about public education – as education secretary, like, that's actually about as much as any president's likely to do. Right. But so let's, let's take a break, though, and then I do – I want to I delve into some, some weedsier aspects. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause. Support for The Weeds comes from Burrow. Okay, are you ready for the understatement of the century? Buying furniture can be frustrating. You end up visiting a bunch of stores searching aimlessly for the right pieces to match your home, then spend hours trying to get those pieces together or together again if you got it wrong the first time. And that's even if you were able to get it through the door. Burrow is a furniture company that wants to make the whole thing easier. Burrow's new Dune line features a contemporary yet timeless look inspired by the craftsmanship of classic mid-century construction. If you're looking to bring a sense of luxury, comfort, and durability to your outdoor spaces, you might want to consider Burrow. Like all of Burrow's pieces, they offer easy assembly and disassembly so you can move or store them away as needed. Not only that, they ship straight to your door for free. Listeners of The Weeds can get 15% off their first order at burrow.com slash weeds. That's Burrow. B-U-R-R-O-W dot com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com slash weeds. 
Okay, so here's the question, Libby. Who's right about the charter schools? Oh, my God. Why are you? <laughs> Thanks, Matt. Thanks Simple. for throwing me this it's super Are easy... they good or are they bad? This is what the people want to know. I would say a lot of people have asked this question, and there's been a lot of research done into it. And oh, yeah. in some cases, the charter schools are good, and in some cases, the charter schools are bad. Wow. It's a real satisfying answer. <laughs> um, mostly what they found is that kind of the epicenter of what people think of the charter school movement, which is charter schools in high-poverty, majority-minority urban areas, overall and in some cases tend to be more successful than traditional public schools. You don't see that as much in suburban areas. You don't see it as much in rural areas. The question, you know, I mean, there are questions beyond that of, like, have charter schools reached their limit on who they can educate in those areas and do a good job? Or, like, if we uprooted every district and replaced it with only charter schools in these, like, high-poverty, high-need districts, would that make a difference? Like, mm-hmm. right. there are still some unanswered questions. But they certainly are successful in some specific settings under some specific conditions. And the other thing or the other issue that's certainly a fixation for teachers' unions is the idea that charter schools draw money and resources away sure. from those traditional public schools. And that's another hotly contested issue. I did or I reported out um, uh, a story about Cory Booker's Newark reforms just a few months ago. And Everybody I talked to was really felt really strongly about this issue with completely kind of contradictory uh, beliefs about whether or not expanding charter schools had depleted the Newark public schools uh, budget. There is some really good research if, if you're into this topic, a group called Research for Action with buy-in from both um, teachers unions and the charter schools took a look at a handful of school districts in Pennsylvania that had significantly expanded charter schools, and they did find that the expansion of charter schools had had a significant and negative impact on the public school districts. Budgets. You know, I, and so, I would say w- one thing about this is that it matters a lot what the underlying population growth dynamics mm, are yeah. because, like, basically, like, some of the money follows the student to the right. charter schools under a standard arrangement, but it's less than 100% of the, like, prorated total budget of the whole system. Because it and it winds up being a question of like, what is the consequence of there being empty space in the building, right? So if you have a very rapid population growth paradigm, then like yes, you have some students exiting the building, but there are plenty of students to fill the seat, and the cost of expanding the physical structures would actually be very large, and the existence of the charters is in some sense like sparing you that burden. But if you have a flatter dynamic, you have empty seats. And so then your per student costs are escalating because you can't just like not heat the building in the right. winter, right? Yeah. You can't you still have to clean the floors and you can wind up with these these problems. And then when you have a place like New York where you have both constrained aggregate population, very high real estate costs, you wind up getting into these questions where first the buildings empty out to an extent, which is hard for the public school to manage. And then uh, not under de Blasio, but under the, the Bloomberg regime, there was a lot of pressure to be like, hey, you don't need all this space in the building. Like we're going to co-locate the, yeah. the charter school there, right? I mean, like, like Libby, you were saying, you know, it's like the quality it seems to vary from place to place, but it's like the impact on the school situation is 
Like, it's very contingent on what the nature of the actual situation is. Yeah, I should also say this varies a lot by state. Your mention of Pennsylvania reminds me of that because Pennsylvania has a very loose charter law, um, including, I think, until uh, – this may have changed, but at least until recently, they could have online charter schools, which are just bad news. Online charter schools are, are bad. You know, a lot depends, I think, we've seen on, like, how much oversight there is. Like, if you right. just let anybody move in and open up a school, like, turns out, doesn't always work out all that well. Um in states, you know, Massachusetts had a big fight over lifting its charter school cap recently, and it was sort of double-edged sword because one reason Massachusetts charter schools have been successful is that they have a very, like, rigid oversight. Certainly, there are supporters of charter schools and people who, you know, have done the research and care a lot about this who thought that that cap could be lifted and the oversight could continue. You know, it's not like let anybody come in or, like, we're going to have 10 charter schools and no more. Right. There's definitely, like, a continuum between those things. Um but the state does matter a lot. If To, to sort of follow from Dylan's point, um, if people are interested in the sort of the education research side of this, uh, there's a group called Credo at Stanford University that has done really the leading research on test scores and charter schools and what this means educationally. The unanswered question that as somebody who started in higher ed, I'm really interested in and that we're just about to start seeing is what happens. Um, a lot of these sort of high-performing urban charter schools have – a teaching model where college is emphasized from day one. All of their students apply to college. They often have, you know, they can brag that 90% or whatever percent of their classes were admitted. Um, what actually happens to those students once they're in college, to me, is one of the most interesting ongoing research questions. Right, we're still waiting like, to see, like, like the first KIPP kids. Uh, and similarly, as... we're waiting to see uh, lifetime earnings, which is the kind of thing that we're going to probably start seeing in about 10 years, some really robust earnings data on but charter so, schools. So. I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna hot takeify this a little bit, go which is like I I feel like the charter critics like they always go too far. They like attack a lot of people's motives in like weird, ugly ways. They misrepresent the situation in a lot of ways. But fundamentally, what this research is telling us is that the vision of like charter schools as a concept rather than the specific vision of some of the charter operators. But the vision of charters as a concept has failed, right? That like in particular, unconstrained entry leads to bad outcomes, right? The choice per se does not seem to be beneficial. So like in suburban areas where the existing schools are pretty good, the charters make things worse, right? And that is really telling you something, right? Because like in a standard like free market-y kind of way, you would say that like giving people a choice of which bicycle to buy is always going to be better, even if like the Savcom official bicycle, like, works, you could get even better bicycles by allowing free choice. And we are not seeing that in the public school arena. Like, what we are seeing is that where the schools are below average, allowing new entrants can create average quality schools, which is an interesting fact. And, like, I think people need to wrestle with that question because, like, if you are resident of a city with below-average schools, if you're the mayor of a city with below-average schools, you should be doing something. And it seems like these charter schools can help, right? But, like, as a conceptual diagnosis of, like, what's up with education, it just seems, I think, really clear that, like, just let people start up schools, let parents pick which school they want to send their kids to, and they will naturally gravitate toward high-quality outcomes. Like, that is like, totally wrong. Yeah, I mean, this this is sort of where we get into the umbrella of school choice, which is one of those things that, because it is kind of dog whistly, 
gets people very up in arms because sure. school choice has two parts and it. This is kind of where the charter movement came from to begin with. There was the very like Milton Friedman idea that what we should do is just give everybody, give every parent the amount of money the state would spend on their student as a voucher, let them do whatever they want with right. it. And as that was like really in ascendance in the 90s, charter schools were the like moderate alternative to right. this of like, no, we're going to try to keep like some control of this, right. um, keep it secular, uh, not just let anybody like take money and do anything with it. But the underlying idea of really both was that competition was going to lift all boats. Um, that's been studied more aggressively on vouchers than it has on charters, but it has not found that the existence of vouchers makes like public schools try to I mean, they may be trying, but, but it doesn't but also, make them, like, really, you know, it doesn't – you can't just make schools better by, like, giving people a choice. But also, like, the online charters, right? Like, the theory would be if they were terrible, nobody would sign up for them. But, like, it sounds like a terrible idea. The studies indicate it's a terrible idea. But, like, you can make real money running an online charter school if you can get the state legislature to let you. I mean, Matt, I want you to talk about this as a parent in D.C. in a choice <laughs> system. Like – I am, do not have children. I have no – and I know a lot about education, and I have no idea what I would look at. So it turns out, as far as I can tell, parents make decisions about where to send their school based on a weighted average of the demographics of the students already at the school and the commuting logistics, right? And, like, there is no – and the play, the niceness of the playground. Yeah, I believe I mean, is they, something you they, mentioned. They, at yes, some point. I mean, I mean, they you can you can do marketing to sort of right because nobody wants to say to themselves this. This is where the torn. I am sending my child to a bad school by which they mean low income African Americans are there because I like its benefit to my commute. Right. So some people feel cross pressured, and you can get them off that by being like, oh, look at this nice new play set. And people will be like, oh, well, you know, school's getting better, <laughs> by which they mean at the younger grades, there are fewer kids from low-income African-American households. And to be frank, I mean, African-American parents do this too. I mean, they will say it differently, that like they want their kids to go to a diverse school rather than a segregated one. Uh, I think the white parents would be happy to send their kids to a segregated <laughs> school, by which they mean all white. But like, that's all they're doing. And it's not just people being superficial or people being bigoted. It's that the school performance results are just reported as like, how's the meeting, reading score? How's the math score? For older kids, it's like, who's going to college? Blah, blah, blah. And like, yeah, like obviously if 70% of your kids have like college-educated, affluent parents with like two mom and dad there, like they're going to do better than a school where like the kids' parents like uh, can only read Amharic, right? Or like the kids' parents are uh, semi-literate in Spanish. And, you know, like, that's it, it, obvious, right? And, like, that's what parents are picking on. And, like, nobody is doing these, like, deep dives. And, like, frankly, there are people who are education policy professionals and, like, know how to do these deep dives in statistics. And, like, even they're not. Right. And like normal people, particularly the people who are the imagined beneficiaries of the choice paradigm, are like not at all equipped to be like, aha, when you apply appropriate statistical controls, like actually this middle school is doing really well. <laughs> like, right. And like, what kind of sense does that make? Right. Because it's like the statistics are controlling for the fact that those parents can't do that math. Interestingly, education policy people I know tend to actually be more 
less concerned about this, I think, than the typical parents because right. they have a better understanding of, like, how much of this is, like, what you're – especially in the early grades, how much of it is what you're doing at home versus what you're doing at school. Yeah, and, you yeah, know, yeah. like, hey, there are other benefits and, like, you know what? The kid's five. Everybody's going to be fine. Yes. And, uh, yes, I mean, a- education policy professionals will very heavily weight the convenience of the community. Yeah. <laughs> right? I mean, which is good, right? I mean, they – in some ways, right? So it's, like, the more informed people are about education, the less they, like, go in for, like – bad assessments of school quality, but it doesn't lead them to heavily emphasize the assessment of school quality. It just leads them to understand the limited relevance of the whole subject, right? But, like, I think it's very telling in D.C. or any other city that has a lot of KIPP schools um, is, like, ride the bus. Because KIPP schools are run by well-meaning people who do their marketing in a well-meaning way. So, like, they target it to the clients that they want, right, to to working class uh African-American, Latino families. They have a lot of ads on the bus for that reason. Uh, But the ads do not say, like, with appropriate statistical controls applied, right? (laughs) They really just emphasize, like, the discipline, the school uniforms, blah, 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 because it's marketing, right? And and they're doing their jobs correctly. But, like, everybody does marketing. And, like, not everybody is as high-minded in, like, what is the objective of their marketing. And just, like, charter school marketing does not emphasize the things that the most sophisticated proponents of charter schools would emphasize because, like, they themselves know that, like, some of the schools succeed, but, like, the choice paradigm has failed. Yeah. I mean, which is interesting because I, the one of the other, I think, overarching concerns about charters for a long time was the idea of self-selection and the idea that you'd have specific, you know, more kind of motivated families with more motivated kids who would end up in charter schools yes. and that would leave more disadvantaged and difficult students behind at the traditional No, and I schools. feel like if anything, that like critique was utopian. Right. <laughs> that like, that, like anybody fair. would even bother to like self-select. It's like it, the ability of charter schools in suburban Massachusetts to lower average school quality it should be like a real gut check, I think, for everyone. Like I know that for the like big fans of like education reform is the civil rights issue of our time, they sort of don't care if – this it's happens. amazing how much charter schools, suburban charter schools, are just not part of the conversation. Right. Like, I have to remind myself that they exist. But this is, like, this is an important fact about, like, how the world works, that, like, where the existing public schools are doing okay, that, like, breaking loose of the shackles of these collective bargaining agreements or whatever else, like, and just, like, letting whoever run amok, it makes it worse, right? right? And like, that's I, I'm anti the letting whoever run amok education policy of 2019. I'm just going to, like, put that out there. Right, but, but that's, like, that's what they do in Arizona. That's yeah, what that's they true. do in Ohio, right? I mean, again, like, it, it's true. I will go to the barricades for the people who are running the high-performing narrowly focused on high-need urban population charter operators. I think it is, like, terrible how they sometimes get, like, slandered in order to make this, like, big-picture point about labor relations. But, like, also, you can't defend a nationwide policy thrust by saying, like, well, if you ignore the majority of the cases, then our idea is working great. Because, like, everybody's idea works by that standard. 
Well, and what's interesting about the politics of this, I think, is, you know, Democrats are, are newly reliant on the suburbs where education yes. is not and charter schools are not as salient of an issue for a lot of voters. Like I was talking to Andy Rotherham, who worked on education under uh, President Clinton, and he made yeah. this point that, like, for those kind of new suburban voters who made a big difference for Democrats in the midterm elections, this is not necessarily um, going to be a top issue for them. And so I mean, I actually I would think I think education to the degree that education is important to anyone in voting, which is like debatable. I think it's very important to suburban voters. It's just important in a really different way. Right. And I think this ties into how we're seeing the like real comeback of teachers unions as like a positive force in American politics is that the point at which teachers started essentially revolting over the last year was very tied to state funding. And mm. state funding is one of those things that even in the suburbs, like I'm from Kansas, you can tell in the suburbs, even in the wealthiest suburbs, which is where I am from, when a state is not funding its schools. Mm -hmm. And people get het up about that. And when teachers are on – which as they should – and when teachers are on that side as opposed to being part of the, like, amorphous idea of red tape and collective bargaining and out for themselves first and, like, whatever the other, like, stereotypes are – that is a much more winning issue of being like, hey, we should fund the schools as opposed to like, hey, let's have this like technical debate about who should be running the schools. Yeah, let, let's take another break and, and then let's, let's, let's talk more about that because it ties into another candidate. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com code WEEDS to save up to $400. Hydro.com code WEEDS. Support for this show comes from Sylvan Learning. As a parent, you want your child to have every opportunity. But giving them the tools they need to tackle every challenge, that takes a team. Now more than ever, educational support tailored exactly to what your child needs can make all the difference. That's why parents have trusted Sylvan Learning for 45 years as the ultimate teammate in their child's educational journey instilling in them a love for learning and a passion for reaching the next level. And Sylvan's Insight Assessment can identify gaps in learning and areas that could be of concern for your child. It's a 360-degree view into your child's learning that you can't find anywhere else and helps ensure that your child didn't miss something in school that might put them at a disadvantage in the future. And right now, it's the best price of the year at $29. Go to sylvan29.com to learn more and get your child's assessment for only $29. That's S-Y-L-V-A-N-29.com. Another thing that, like, has, has come through to me over the past 10 years re reading research is that, you know, 
there has always been this question of like how important is the money, right? And I think there's been a really solid argument from the reformers that like there is a lot of variance in school quality that is not explicable by funding, that like it matters a lot what you do with the money and these questions of – they're like – it's annoying to politicians, but like it lands on your desk if you're if you're the mayor, if you run the the school board is like you have to you have to make choices and what choices you make matter. But we've also seen like a lot of research in recent years that like all else being equal, the money makes a pretty big difference. Yeah, I think this is one of the underrated developments in education research, especially among you know people who are reformers, not just in the like choice as a general concept, but like. There are a lot of people who see themselves as data-driven and they care about this because of the results. And we've right. seen in the research, um, Carabo Jackson at Berkeley, I think, is really the leading researcher on this. But, like, yeah, like, per-student funding, per-pupil funding actually makes a huge difference. And this has happened as we've seen really big cutbacks across the board from most state governments in the Great Recession, which was now 10 years ago, and yet often still has not recovered or caught up. Right. And it's created for if you were a— politician, right? I mean, I think if you are running for president in 2020 uh, as opposed to 2008 and you are saying to yourself, like, I am not just a cold-eyed cynic. I do care about the quality of public education, but also I am not comfortable, like, picking a big fight with teachers' unions. You can, in good conscience, say my education policy is to flush a bunch more money into public education and that will make public education better. Like, I think that is, like— Solid. Like, it is true there are things that would make unions angry that might make it better, but, like, something that will make them very happy, like – put a dump truck of money at the low-income districts, like, that that will help. Like, there's a, there's a, a lot of papers about it, and, and it shows it. And that's it's basically where Kamala Harris landed on this, right? It's right. like, we're going to have the federal government spend money on raising teacher salaries. Yeah, she has a plan to give uh, every teacher in America an average of $13,000 raise over um, the f- her f- first four years, her first term in office, um, and has it's, it's like $315 billion. And so, yeah, she's going to throw money God, at the problem. So <laughs> um, I'm not saying that as like a judgment or saying we shouldn't spend it. Just wow, when you add that up. Right. Well, and now Sanders has a part, you know, it's not the charter right. schools piece of this, but he's part of his uh, broader education agenda is to set a salary floor of $60,000 for teachers across yeah. the country. And so. I think there's, you know, there's like technical issues with all this because it's the federal government is like 12 million steps removed from actually setting of teacher salaries. But like as an idea, like reverse these funding cuts, put money into schools and in particular put money into the places that are most in need of money. Like it it seems like a pretty good idea. Yeah. Well, and I mean, what's interesting, if you were thinking about this as a policy is they do note that all of this would be reliant on getting states buy-in. And I think we've seen, you know, from recent examples in other subject areas that uh, relying on states, especially states run by a different political party to enact your policy agenda is not always. I'm so glad you're here because I really feel like anytime we talk about any of these education plans, we need someone here who understands healthcare to be like, <laughs> but, you know, the federal government can promise to match 90% of the costs, which is a more generous offer than is on the table with oh, yeah, uh, right. any of these, especially when we, we're not talking about higher today, but like, especially when you start talking about free college plans, um, yes. most of the matches are in the range of two-thirds to three-quarters. 
That's way less than what the Medicaid match was. States still didn't take it. States right. went to the Supreme Court to not have to take it. Right. Like, Although I wonder, right? I mean, one of the interesting quirks of healthcare policy is that because of the way foreign countries have organized their healthcare system, universal healthcare as like a goal has mm. this like totemic uh, feature in in the psyche of American liberals. And free college is somewhat the same, right? So in that case, the fact that it's like, how generous do I need to make it to get Alabama to do this? Right. And it's like 90%, like maybe they're going to sue, right? <laughs> they, that becomes like a big problem for them. On other policy issues, though, I think – I think the psychology flips where it's like the federal government, which has more taxing power than state and local governments because it's it's easy to like leave Bridgeport and go live in Greenwich. But it's really hard to leave the United States of America and, you know, just like abandon your whole career, right? So like the federal government can tax the rich and then can put money into local public services if – conservatives want to not take that money, that's even better. Like, that's like, that's more money for the Democrats. And it's a policy issue, right? Like, many red states have not expanded Medicaid, but quite a few have. It's yeah, true. That's true. And, yeah. it's a, and it's like a good thing for Democrats to run on, yeah. right? And if I was trying to think, it's like, how are we going to, like, rebuild the shattered corpse of the Democratic Party of Ohio? Like, <laughs> putting on the table, right, like a huge amount of money that, like, if you say yes to this and give it to your public schools, the federal government will give it to you for free. Yeah. And then watching Mike DeWine be like, nah, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Right? Like, like that, that would be I mean, helpful to, to local Democrats. And education is, I mean, this kind of gets back to the debate about universal versus targeted programs. Education, um, K-12 education is the most universal program there is. Right. I mean, you know, if I'm a, if I'm a governor with a divided legislature in a blue state trying to make a case for taking this money, I put 75 percent of it into high-need districts, give enough to the wealthier districts that they can, like, hire back some art teachers that they laid right, off or whatever. Right, exactly. Like, everybody, uh, unlike Medicaid, there, right, there's something in it for everybody. Um, also, even though teachers' unions managed to attract a bad reputation among journalists somehow, uh, teachers are very well regarded in America, right? And, like, having a bunch of teachers, like, walking around being like, State Senator so-and-so, they, they drove the garbage truck of money up to his office <laughs> and he's refusing to take it. Like that's like – like that's good politics. So I, I – and, and because there is no like end state, right? Yeah. Like, you've, I, yeah, you've changed my mind. I, I, think, I, think, I, I think you're right. I, I think I it think, is fundamentally I think, different. I think it's savvy in the K-12 context whereas it's going to lead to uh, – crippling disappointment in the higher ed context. Yes. Right. But this does, I mean, you can't help but keep thinking about the relative impotence that <laughs> the federal government has on these on these issues because yes. I, I was thinking about our conversation or, you know, the earlier conversation about um, funding and, like, trying to fix those disparities and, like, the most that Sanders can come up with to try to fix that problem is rethinking the link between property taxes and school funding. Oh, yeah. Which is, like... Or like a very foundational issue, but from the federal government's perch, the most yeah. that you can do is rethink it. I never know if I think the link between property taxes and school funding is like the crux of the issue or actually hugely overrated. On one level, like it's important. On another level, like states do do a lot of funding that's not locally based. And then on the third hand, right, like whenever you look at big 
cities, right? In New York City, in Washington, D.C., yes, the funding is tied to property taxes, but the property taxes are aggregated across the city. And it's not like you have an egalitarian utopia. The crucial thing is that the people in the affluent neighborhoods are much happier to share their property tax dollars with the people in the low-income neighborhoods than they are to share their actual schools. Yeah, I mean, I think the thing that we can definitely say is the crux of the issue here is the link between real estate and right, education. exactly. And untangling that is the actual third rail that uh, very few are going to want to touch. Uh, Julian Castro does have some ideas yes. on this line. H- H- Julian Castro, who has not gotten a lot of attention in the presidential race. At, except on the weeds. Yes. <laughs> um, as a uh, both former mayor and former HUD secretary, is very attuned to the fact that there is a – that at least the, the equity piece of education in America is like largely a real estate issue – Like the quality case has more to do with education per se, but like what's inequitable about public education in America is that the housing market is inequitable. Um, And people talk about like desegregation on the left, which I think is good, but then I think often don't want to look into like like where does the segregation come from, right? Which is not really the – Schools. Right. It's great. I mean, the link between the neighborhood and the school. Right. Which has been sort of, in some parts of the left, sort of uplifted and hallowed as the alternative to privately run charter schools. It's also like one of the largest inequities in American education. But it's a hard, it's the kind of thing that breaking from the federal level is pretty difficult. Oh, yeah. And even at the state, I mean, even at the state level, what I would do is create, like, giant school districts. Right. And then have, like, open choice within the district. Right, 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 yes. But, I mean, I I think this is the point, right? So it's like you can have this, like, like argumentative ping pong, like in the big city context, right? Where where the reformers are like, oh, let's open some charter schools. And the other people are like, nah, but the real issue here is segregation. But then it's like, okay, but what's the what's the plan to fix the segregation? Because the charter schools at least have open admission across the city, and the so-called public schools don't, right? So like if you're tripling down on the geographically exclusionary schools while then leaping up and down and saying segregation is the real issue. You know, you've sort of got a got a problem. And I mean, I thought you said something similar. There was this like flurry of activity of people criticizing Joe Biden for like having been a sort of vocal opponent of anti-segregation busing initiatives in the 70s, which is fair, but it's not like the other Democrats in the year of our Lord 2019 are proposing that we bus children across school different district lines to promote school integration. They're just too young to have like been there when that fight was lost. I took the stuff around Biden's comments to be as much sort of how he talked about it, right? Like right. it was very much like of its time, the it, 1970s, it, the way he discussed busing to it, desegregate. It was very much of his time. But I mean, also – like, Elizabeth Warren is not proposing sure. that they put black kids on school buses and send them to the public schools in Newton. And if she did propose that, she would lose her office in Massachusetts. Right. Interest- I mean, interestingly, Warren is somebody who has really backed away from a yes. very bold policy that you and I have both written about, like, five years apart, Matt, uh, that she had in her, like, writing books as a college professor era – uh, that did try to sort of unravel this issue. Right, exactly. So she had a sort of – it was going to be like a like a statewide open choice 
initiative, which so like the schools would be public, but like you would have lottery admission to everything. Um, this has gone. This is in her book, The Two Income Trap. She talked about it a little bit for a couple years after that, and she has um, not disavowed it, but not avowed it. Yeah, I mean, it was definitely in a different. This was in a moment when vouchers were like really on the rise. I think two thousand yep. was when the book was published, right? Uh, 2004. 2004. Okay, yeah. so George W. Bush had been yeah. in office. Vouchers were like, because the year 2000 was very strange, like a huge issue in yep. the election of 2000, which is wild in retrospect. Um, and this was one of those, I think, like charter schools, like, a, okay, like what of choice, but not that much choice. Right. Um, although I actually do think it's a genuinely good idea. Well, and Warren is a good example of like the vacuum of policy here because like, you know, she is, a, as I actually was checking my email before we started and I had asked her uh, campaign for her education policy a couple of weeks ago. And basically it's very heavily focused on student debt. And I know we're not talking right. about higher ed here today. Um, other than that, like she's largely, she said she would appoint a public school teacher um, as education secretary. Secretary. I know in 2016, Matt, you referred to the Boston Charter School. She opposed a ballot initiative yep. there um, to expand charter schools in, in Massachusetts. Um, but otherwise, like, yeah, it's just kind of been a, a left untouched largely. And, and I mean, there's something healthy about that. Yeah, like, this is not a top-tier federal policymaking subject. Like, you referenced, right? So, like, in, in the early aughts, like— National politics featured a lot of talk about local public school management. Yes, because nothing else was happening. <laughs> right. Um, I mean, I think th- I'm kind of two minds on this. Like, on the one hand, I think it's kind of funny and wild that, like, Elizabeth Warren, the person whose entire persona at this point is that she has, like, a 27-point plan for everything. Her K-12 plan is, like, literally a tweet <laughs> about who she would appoint as education secretary. On the other hand, like, yeah, that's about what you get to do. Right. Um, and I do think, like— I. There are proposals in this race that would have a tremendous effect on education in America. Right. They're just not education proposals. Right. Like if you're looking at some of the child poverty stuff, if you're looking at some of the housing ideas um, from Kamala Harris and others, like having child poverty in America would probably have tremendously good effects on the achievement gap in America. Right. And that's actually something the president – can try to work on right. and leave the, like, charter school issue to mayors and governors. And, like, you know, I actually, as an education person who always wants my issue to be in the discourse so I can go on the weeds, like, it's a, it's a huge bummer. But um, in terms of, like, where the priority should be, I think there's a case that's about right. The only thing about it, I would say, is that th- there's a certain logic to, like, my only K-12 education policy is going to be a tweet. <laughs> but you should follow the logic of that, right? And, like, instead of the tweet saying, I'm going to have a public school teacher be education secretary, you should acknowledge that – it's not like – the education department doesn't run colleges either. But, like, school uh, – higher education finance is a substantially federalized topic in the United States, right? So, yeah. like, having somebody who is either an expert in the substance of higher education or in higher education – financing or something in the nexus of the two, like, that would make a lot of sense. Like, that's something the federal government not only has a lot of control over, but it's one of the kind of subjects where, like, even if you don't care as president, like, your education department is doing a lot of administrating. Yeah, it's, I mean, because everybody thinks of education in America as, like, kids, little kids. Got the kids. There's been one education secretary who has higher ed background ever, and that was Lamar Alexander, who ran the University of Tennessee as part of sort of a broader political career in the state of right. Tennessee. But um, in fairness, like, he did have that background. Right. And you still see it. Like, he still is somebody who knows a lot about this issue and legislates a lot right. on it. Yeah. Like, 
thank you for giving me this hobby horse to ride away on. Let's but do it. Let's ride. Let's rock. appoint. I mean, appoint. The federal government doesn't run colleges, but it does fund them. Like right. basically, not completely, but like pretty. You know, you turn off the federal grants and loans. Like nobody's right. going to college in America except right. for the very wealthy. And there's a lot that can be done through those grants and loans and, like, maybe appoint somebody who knows how to do that. It can be somebody who was a public school teacher. There's a good amount of crossover. Like, it's not that hard. Um, But I would, you know, I would be looking if I were playing fantasy cabinet uh, at someone who has run a state system or who has worked on higher education at the state level and who ideally has done it not at – you know, a, a major prestigious flagship state university that's private and all the name. Like, I would look at um, Nancy Zimfer, who is the chancellor of SUNY, is somebody who comes to mind. Um, I An cannot, Ohio person. Uh, I cannot remember the name of the, uh, the Cal State chancellor, but um, Janet Politano at the UC system also already has done a cabinet job. This one seems easier than DHS, honestly. Um, and has run a big state system where funding and affordability is a huge issue. Or looking at people who've run, you know, high, higher education systems at the state level. Zakia Smith, who was on Obama's Domestic Policy Council and now runs higher ed in the state of New Jersey, I think would be a tremendous choice as somebody who cares a lot about financing, who cares a lot about higher education, who has a sense of what the education department can actually do Right. Because And I think the logic of this is that, you know, you have the sort of most famous state schools, um, flagships. They do a lot of private fundraising. Uh, they have big sports teams. They have and, big endowments. They you know, and, they, and other things like that, yeah. But so, like, D- David Leonhardt did this article where he was looking at schools that have higher graduation rates than you would expect given the students who are coming in, right? And there were a couple of SUNY campuses and the University of Wisconsin's Eau Claire campus, right? And, and these are the kind of places where they are primarily dependent on public funding streams, right, on both right. the loans and the grants and the tuition assistance. And – Ideally, if you could get somebody who had, like, run a school that was dependent on that federal money and did a good job with it, they might have some ideas about how to use the money to help slash force everybody else to also do a good job. Yeah, and that's uh, that's why Nancy Zimfer at SUNY came immediately yeah. to mind, but not only because they have some good outcomes on this, but because she worked very closely with the Obama administration. It's a lot of people – I mean, the real problem here is, like – most of higher education, including public higher education, would just really prefer that the education department, like, yeah, not. Yeah, yeah. Mm. Um, and so finding somebody who both understands the system and is open to, like, the theory that the federal government could try to force some change right. uh, is actually fairly difficult. Yeah. But there are, you know, there are people within the system and who can, like— Represent for things like not every college student is an 18-year-old from a middle-class right. family. And, like, representing that point of view at the highest level I think is super important. No, right. And, I mean, that's why it's good that, like, SUNY is a big public university system and has some pretty good results. But it's not a prestigious one. Right. And those are the people who are actually coping with the sort of underrated reality of education in America instead of the, like, fancy school treadmill. I have to say, after looking at that Times piece yesterday and doing a little research, I also came up with Nancy Zimfer, so I feel like we've decided who the next education secretary was going to be. There you go. Cool. All right. All Nancy right. Zimfer, our, our, congratulations. Our, fancy, our fancy, edu- fantasy education secretary draft is complete. Right. Was she ever a public school teacher, though? Or is, is she, I, I should have looked Is she, is she disqualified? <laughs> she ran uh, the education program at Ohio State University, which makes me partial to her, of course. Okay. But. Uh, well, I think with that, having selected 
elected a new education secretary who's not <laughs> going to do anything with charter schools. I think we really understand charter schools. Um, so thanks, guys. Thanks, thanks, Libby and Dylan. Uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Um, thanks to uh, Jackson Bierfeld for helping out uh, engineering this episode. Thanks, as always, to our producer, Jeffrey Gill, and to our sponsors. Uh, the Weeds will return on Tuesday. Thank you.